0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the InDefense Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are diving into a very, very complex topic, and that is invasive plant species. Now, this isn't so much a value judgment, That's a topic for another time, but today we are talking to Dr. Callie Mattingly, who studies why some plants are able to become so invasive to the point where they're crowding out and threatening the ecological health of native ecosystems. Dr. Mattingly takes a variety of approaches to this, both ecological and genetic, but she brings a statistical background that makes everything she does so much stronger. I'll let her describe all the details to you because it is absolutely fascinating work, but before we get to that, I just want to say if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to give it a future, please consider supporting us over at patreoncom plants For a little financial help each month, you get a lot of great kickbacks, but most importantly, you help keep the show up and running. I literally couldn't be doing this without the support of my patrons, so thank you to all of them. Once again, that's patreon.com/indefensiveplants. But that is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this any longer, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Callie Mattingly. I hope you enjoy. <laughs> All right, Dr. Callie Mattingly, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Sure. Yeah. Hi, my name is Callie Mattingly. I finished my PhD about a year and a half ago now. I was studying the evolution and ecology of invasive plants. Um, Before that, I did a little bit of work looking at rare plants as well. And now I'm a statistician contractor for the EPA. So I work for their Great Lakes office and I consult with all the different projects that they're doing. So a lot of it is environmental toxicology, looking at water pollution. And then there is some aquatic ecology stuff, too. Looking at things like harmful algal blooms, um, restoration projects, a lot of different stuff. So it's it keeps things exciting. Something all the time.
0: Wow. That's an interesting trajectory to make uh, that leap. And I'm, I'm curious, you called yourself a statistician. And to me, that is like a scary word sometimes because stats were always kind of a hiccup. But obviously, some people enjoy it and really run with it. And I, I would imagine before we kind of get into the biological side of things that becoming a statistician really helps you do science, really. I mean, there's, there's no way around it, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. I... Was surprised to find that that ended up being my favorite part of the scientific process i started out my master's being scared of stats and so i intentionally took every single stats class that was <laughs> offered so that i could overcome the fear kind of like exposure therapy i guess excellent force me into it and then i mean once i actually got my hands dirty and my own projects and doing the stats i thought it was really fun and thought coding was really fun solving little problems, and uh, making pretty figures. (laughs) So that ended up becoming a strength of mine, and I decided that that's what I wanted to focus on. So I think the thing that really first brought me to science was that I wanted to be outside, and I wanted to look at cool plants. But then I can do that on my own time. I can do that (laughs) for fun. So uh, for my work, I'm fine to just sit at a computer, and then on the weekends I can... Go. touch
0: cute plants. Oh, that's fascinating. I I really like to hear that story. And yeah, I mean, to me, I didn't get my head wrapped around stats at all. Now I have a very limited wrapped around version of it, but um until I was working on my own projects. And so this combination of loving biology, wanting to get involved with it, obviously pushed you into that direction and and lo and behold, you've discovered something about yourself and and really set your career on the path that it's on today, which is exciting, but Where did the uh, plant, uh, was it plants first? I mean, was it just being, like you said, out in nature and plants just happened to kind of capture your attention at some point? Or or was it just all of biology slash ecology?
1: It's always been plants for me. Nice. Um, I, as a kid, uh, spent a lot of time with my Nana in her garden and learned a lot about plants from her. And my dad also is a retired high school science teacher. So we were, he knows all the tree tree names. Nice. That was the thing I remember as a kid that we'd always go on hikes and he would stand with his hands on his hips and look up at the trees and tell me what they were. So that was probably the first uh the, the first type of plant I was into was trees. So oh, wow. Um so yeah, ever since I was a kid, it was always the plants for me. But I also remember uh getting those little uh those little green nets and catching crawdads and other cool stuff in the creek and things like that so I guess wasn't wasn't always just plants but plants are always my favorite
0: sure, sure sure a lot of us
1: can agree on that yeah
0: oh yeah they're the reason you know everyone's got the reason they're going outside but then if you know you truly are a nature nut everything catches your eye at some point or another and and to me plants are a lens of which I view the rest of the world because for me they form the foundation, but I love taking pictures of all the insects and arthropods that use them, the birds of ism. So it's it's really all encompassing. And that's why, you know, ecology exists, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's all about the interactions.
0: Nice. Well, that's cool. It's it's actually surprisingly rare that I run into someone that's just been like, I've liked plants since I was a kid. Now, the, the stage at which that came into play is, is varies from person to person, but it is surprisingly rare for a plant-based podcast that talks to mostly plant-based people that plants really started out as the interest. That's great. And kudos to wow. your, your nana <laughs> and your father for really you know instilling that love in you. That's that's awesome. It's rare.
1: <laughs> wow. I'm glad I get the plant gold star. That feels good. Um, yeah. yeah. I guess plants have a lot of benefits scientifically since they don't move mm. and they're easy to study. Also, their stats are pretty easy. I mean, all the like frequentist stats were based on just easy like crop experiments right and then of course things get way more complicated in the field and with things that move so we have to make complicated (laughs) stats for them Um, but yeah that makes sense that people would fall into plants even if that wasn't their first interest but for me it was my first interest so
0: that's great and so you know you're in grad school. This is where you started to really dive into why you love doing science and what excites you about science. But how did you find yourself working with invasive species? Your 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 CV has a a long publication history of working with these types of organisms. Obviously, plants being sort of the one category of invasives. But that's a that's a hefty world to try to unpack, especially as a, a grad student just trying to figure out their their trajectory in the world.
1: Yeah, I always thought that invasive plants were really interesting and just why are they everywhere? It's fascinating, right? I remember seeing hillsides of kudzu. I, that's the, uh, kudzu is a big like unifying plant that I've heard for a lot of people (laughs) um, that I can connect with, connect with folks on with invasive plants. It's just very impressive. Um, But I had a great professor in undergrad who studied invasive plants And it was a small college, uh, Transylvania University, Lexington, Kentucky. Shout out uh, Dr. Sarah Bray. So she was the only uh, ecologist. And that was what I was very interested in. And she studied invasive plants. So she really got me into it. And so, yeah, the first research project that I was on was in the forestry department at University of Kentucky, looking at invasive winter creeper. Wow. And Yeah, most of the projects that I've been on have touched with invasive species in some aspect, even when I was studying the rare endangered plant that I was studying. It was its interaction with Japanese knotweed. That was the reason that I got on the project originally. So yeah, I've just always been really interested in figuring out why are they everywhere. I started with the ecology and then I kind of edged towards more evolution with my PhD program. But there's always new questions
0: to ask. Hey, yeah. <laughs> it is heck of a field. And and really they do present us with fascinating experiments, right? And and a lot of them hindsight's twenty twenty. I wish we didn't have those experiments, but we do and we'd best be learning something from them. And you bring up an interesting idea here, because there's a lot of different ways to look at commonness and rarity on the landscape. But I think invasive species offer us some of the best ways to view that question is what makes a plant in this case rare versus a plant that is hyper common. I mean, common when we talk about invasives is sometimes monoculture status. And so, you know, this Mm -hmm. gets into some deep ecological theory uh, that, you know, I, as best as I could tell, we still don't have a firm grasp on it uh, on a big picture sort of way.
1: Yeah. There are so many ways it can happen. It depends, right? (laughs) That's what we love to say as scientists when we don't know the answer. But now that we know the answer, there are just a lot of answers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and the it don't say it depends. You get told that as a grad student and then you get into it and you're like, wait, it it always depends. What are we talking about here?
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's a throwaway.
0: Yeah. It's easy. But uh, again, I get why they want you to start thinking about it in a big way. But you know, when you think about the different kinds of mechanisms that lend to invasive species commonness, I guess is the gentle way of putting it, which which sort of bite did you take off of this possible theoretical uh, maze, I guess?
1: Yeah, I, well, that first winter creeper project, I was looking at interactions with other species, so outcompeting other things. Mm. And then towards the end of um, not the end, I'm in the middle of my career, but more recent, I guess. <laughs> um, the more recent aspects um, looking at, so I was really interested in how different introductions, different um, propagule sources of invasive species from their native range, how all of those come together in the introduced range and how they that diversity might interact and create something new potentially Mm. or maybe one of the one of the introductions is really good at being invasive but it seems like that introduction of diversity and then admixture that was what i was that was what i was seeing and most interested in i was looking a lot at horticultural Mm. introductions so the horticultural industry they're looking for things that have certain traits or a diversity of traits and um, bringing in new and interesting cultivars that have, you know, things that can, things that are sellable. Yeah. Maybe it's really sellable to have really big flowers. Maybe having really big flowers also means it's going to make huge seeds that spread. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just making things up. Sure. But so <laughs> yeah, um, one example you mentioned, Lester Salendine, as a species that you're interested in. And I've been watching some online webinars for MIPHIN, the Midwest Invasive Plants Network. And I saw that that's number one on their list right now, too, of a new invasive plant to watch out for. But with that one, there are either five or seven subspecies from the native range. (laughs) There's disagreement taxonomically. But either way, it's very, very diverse. It has different traits. Importantly, it has different ways of reproducing. So it makes uh, root tubers. It also makes bulbuls from the leaves. So just little leaf balls that f- fall off, roll around, roll down the river. And then it also makes seeds. And the common thing you will hear from people about its invasions in North America are that it's the bulbuls. The bulbuls are clonally reproducing it and spreading it all around.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that, we looked at that. We um, did some genotyping and looking at some morphology with some populations in different regions in Ohio and Kentucky, and we saw, yes, lots of bulbils as expected, but those suckers were making seeds that were bigger than they should have,
0: oh. bigger than
1: would would be reported in the literature for ones that rely on bulbils. So we didn't test whether the seeds were viable, but they were big enough to where they might be. Mm. Um, so next step, something interesting to look out, go, somebody go out and look for Akeem's on Lesser die next spring. I guess yeah, it's pretty much right? done now. Um, but when we look at its genetics, not a single clone in our entire data set. And it wasn't a huge data set, but that's surprising for a species that you would expect to be incredibly clonal.
0: Yeah. And...
1: The genetics looked pretty admixed, too, in a way that would suggest sexual reproduction. So they're making those bubbles, but they're also making seeds, which means that those different introductions are admixing and something interesting evolutionarily could be going on.
0: Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> that's wild i mean yeah. you, you buck a lot of assumptions and sometimes what we would consider you know safe assumptions to make um and and stuff that gets repeated I, you know you think of every extension website i've looked at it's like ah they're clonal just pull them up make sure you get every last bit boom um still a problem right but you know it's another conundrum here that i'm I, i'm going to guess this was a, a horticultural introduction right or at least we think it yeah, was yeah
1: it was it was pretty common in, I want to say, like the 40s. Okay. And you can still buy it, Ugh. but I think most of what we have on the landscape is old plantings. It's not a huge seller these days.
0: Yeah. Well, someone wizened up, but the cat's out of the bag, as they say. But, you know. Yeah. The other reason I think a lot of what your findings show us is it bucks the trend is that, you know, when I think of horticultural introductions, whether that's 100 years ago, or whether that's modern ones, I, I think of superficial variety. Like you said, they're selecting for certain traits, and they're trying to get those traits to be as true as possible so that you're offering a consistent product to consumers. Now, to me, that means cloning and, and a reduction of genetic diversity. You single in on a set of traits you like, you fix them, and then you clone and clone and clone and clone. But here's a really great example of that's simply not the safe assumption to make in these cases. And to me that by itself flies in the face of a lot of what we think about in terms of the horticulturally induced invasives
1: yeah um i think that obviously the circumstance that you describe with trying to breed for fidelity and make something um, you know breed true or be an even stronger version of itself that's obviously a path we see as well and these these guys, I don't know about Lesser celandine, but I'm thinking about other mm-hmm. introduced species that horticultural sources are one way that they are moved around, but they are moved around in other ways as well. So purple loosestrife mm-hmm. would be a good example of that. Those little tiny seeds can get into all kinds of different places and ballast water. That's a big thing you mm-hmm. see as a, a way that it was originally introduced because it isn't a wetland species. So yeah, um, it's a great way to move a big lot of seeds, yeah. a big lot of water. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, growing up on the Great Lakes, that is all too familiar. Um, you know, the clean your boat mantra is, is kind of commonplace now, but it wasn't. And I remember growing up seeing just seas of purple and getting like, oh, it's so pretty. And then the unfortunate day you realize how not exciting some of that truly is. Um, that's That's upsetting. And you know your work on on loose strife brings up this point of interactions that these things aren't happening in a vacuum, and their only interaction is not just excluding native species at the cost of biodiversity. Uh, you know, interactions can play out in a lot of different ways. I mean, that's ecology, right? And the fact that these plants do so well in this continent tells me they're interacting and that you know whether we put a positive or negative spin on it, that's an interaction, right?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that purple stripes a great example of that. I mean, it's back when I was started looking, I think it was the only example of local adaptation in an invasive plant, which means it's probably the only example of local adaptation in an invasive species because plants are so easy to study, right? <laughs> right? And plants are so much more likely to be locally adapted mm. than other things are since they can't move. Um Definitely. Somebody email me. Correct me if there are other <laughs> examples. I would be interested to know right. because I I was looking back when I started studying this. But um, yeah, so purple loosestrife interacting with its introduced habitat and it stratifies along latitudinal gradients is what was found. So there are different flowering times. Oh, my dog is oh, saying hi. Hi, pupper. He just got back from. Hi, hey, buddy. Yeah. What's its name? <laughs> Uh, his name is Leto. Leto, that's a good name. Duke Leto Atreides from <laughs> Doom. That's his full title.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I love that. That's a good. It's uh-huh. a solid dog name. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um,
1: yes, but local adaptation in purple loo stripe. So the the flowering time is the trait that stratifies. Um, so you you see that in its native range where earlier flowering, does is a better strategy in the more north climates and um later flowering is a better strategy in more southern and that was a that was a big science paper the yeah. Strike science paper uh, so the journal science uh Colaudi back in 2013 found that um but and they've done a lot more work looking at those patterns since then but um, you see the same patterns recapitulated in the in- introduced range in North America. Wow.
0: Yes. Yeah. Intense. And and it kind of goes back to this question I have about what you started talking about with invasives is this idea of like the introduction event. Like in, in some cases, yes, it's widespread seeding or something for like erosion control, that kind of thing where you'd expect, okay, there's multiple opportunities over s- X amount of years and probably was some genetic diversity was, was playing into that factor. But for some of these invasives, it might have been a single one off or maybe a couple very small isolated incidents that just took time. And so the yeah. fact that we're talking about local adaptation tells me that it's kind of a surprising thing to see across its invasion uh, in, invaded range that it's it's following similar patterns. Mm-hmm. So does that speak to some sort of like propensity for that to just be advantageous or is it just literally just the constraints of the environment uh kind of interacting there uh, or do we not know? Hmm.
1: I don't know. I really think it's probably a case by case thing. Right. Yeah. So it probably just depends on the species and the, and the habitat together and a lot of chance. I mean, <laughs> there's so for all the species that are introduced, a small percentage are going to escape and then a small percentage are going to become invasive. So at every one of those levels of winnowing down, you have a lot of chances and it, it all just...
0: It depends. depends. <laughs> Sorry. I know. It's so true. And I love... I am avoid
1: saying
0: it. I love this, though, because it is so important for people to hear this. I think we are so hungry for this one-size-fits-all or a generalization that we can easily communicate, a good story to tell that just helps sell the idea. And, and it's great for early introductions to a topic, but as soon as you start peeling away the layers... You realize how complex this is, and and, and a loose strife is different than a celandine, and the way those mechanisms play out based on how many different reproductive strategies are available. I mean, in a lot of ways, plants make things a lot easier from a statistical perspective. They don't move around, but at the same time, plants can do wild things that most other organisms can't, and that makes it a slightly more complicated system in a different way. So, this idea that we can kind of narrow it down and be like, well, easy, broad brushstroke, we're done here, pack up, let's go to the next project. Like, No, you could literally spend a whole lifetime just looking at loosestrife and figure out multiple different avenues to approach this topic, especially when it just relates to an invasion, let alone what it's doing in its native habitat. Mm-hmm. Oof. So, yeah, fruitful career ahead of you then, I guess. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there will always be more to look at. I mean, loosestrife is probably the best studied invasive plant. Like, It's a great model system for invasive species and yeah reproductively it's super interesting it's got tri so it's got three different style morphs of different links and that determines which ones can cross with each other they have to cross with a different style morph. Mm. so that was something that darwin studied back nice. in the 1800s so I always love to tell people that I really wanted to be able to cite Darwin in my loose striped paper, but <laughs> it ended up not making sense. Uh, but yeah. I just thought that would be cool.
0: Shoehorning um, in the cool. But yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, people have been really interested in that species for a long time, which I think is neat.
0: Yeah. Well, even just comparing this, uh, again, this idea that each plant is doing something different and, and the way things get introduced and moved around is different. And so that in and of itself probably introduces some confounding effects is like if, if, if you're working in the great lakes and it's was once a heavy shipping corridor, there could have been multiple reintroductions of that species versus, you know, an area that's a little bit more landlocked. Um, like you were talking about with lesser celandine, it can show up in these areas. And the fact that it can reproduce multiple different ways changes things as well Is it's, it's Man, biology is messy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, celandine is interesting in that it seems like it's, we're at the point right now where it's still spreading. Like you see yeah. it in urban areas where it has escaped from those, um, you know, horticultural plantings in people's yards. And it seems like it mostly spreads along rivers but you don't see it in rural areas so much. And when mm. you do, it's it's interesting, but I mean, it's on its way there. So yeah. that's something to look out for. But then loose strife is probably pretty saturated because it's such an old, uh, relatively
0: old, right.
1: invasive species.
0: Yeah. And some somewhat effective biocontrols, as I've understood it. I mean, certain areas that, again, used to be a sea of purple in the 80s are slightly less purple these days. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's what I've heard too. That is exciting. I always like to bring that up when people mention like the evils of biocontrols and all the biocontrols gone wrong because right. that's an example of a somewhat successful one or at least not disastrous. Yeah.
0: Well, again, it's biology. We can't make these broad generalizations and expect them to stick every time, but you know, the other side of this is you got into this seemingly as more of the ecological side of things and and to me as an ecologist, my brain instantly goes, oh, this is an ecological problem, so therefore we should be asking ecological questions. But talking about lesser Selandine and some of the other work, it's, it, it quickly becomes genetic tools help us understand the ecology and actually sometimes can give us deeper insights into how this dynamic is playing out. You might not understand the interactions that are going on between different species, but at the same time, you get a better structural idea of what different populations look like. And And I'm guessing, too, you can kind of elucidate founder effects and and where the original population might be if you're lucky enough, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. And I used super cheap genetics, easy, <laughs> easy-ish. So, I mean, we're at the point where you can do a lot of samples for really cheap um, and still be able to tell a story. So And it's a very accessible method um, that I used. So I think that, yeah, we're at the point where it's it's something that a lot of people should be incorporating into, into their toolboxes um and the with the Celandine project one really cool thing that i did that i didn't know about until i started that project was it was called resistance analysis mm. so if we have a bunch of samples across the landscape genotypes we can match that up to different geographical features So that's the ecology. So we can tie it back to the ecology. And so we were actually able to see that there was gene flow along the rivers, which was cool because that's, you know, what everybody always says, it spreads down the river, it spreads down the river, and we were able to see that. So that was pretty neat. And there were some other cool things that we found from that too. Like I looked at um, some spatial layers for um, land use. Mm. So I uh, I wanted to see... If our, our thought was that neighborhoods that were richer would be more likely to have landscaping. And so that was where the celandine would be more uh, concentrated or more diverse. It had been there for longer. And that's what we saw it was um, higher income properties from a census layer and um, areas that had more lawns. So more open space. And in Columbus, which was the area that we looked at this, it was the suburbs. It was the rich suburbs. And I imagine it's probably similar in most cities, areas where you have higher income and more open space. So I wonder what other invasive plants are like that. Probably a lot, especially horticultural ones.
0: Yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is multiple careers worth of investigations because, yeah, I mean, invasive species and the human element are inseparable right and so you have the affluence of the potential to have multiple different kinds of introductions through just diverse landscaping choices but then all of the suburban disturbance that usually fosters these plants that thrive in our that you know i love when people complain about oh this happened well you've created the exact conditions that this would favor so where's the disconnect here
1: yeah yeah i there's a lot of discourse about like the evil of invasive species, but they're just taking advantage of what we've done. They're right. they're survivors. They take advantage of that disturbance and they thrive.
0: Yeah. I remember seeing a seminar and it was a kind of a hard-hitting, broad brushstroke kind of seminar, but they said, hey, you want to get rid of kudzu? You want to get rid of the uh, Eurasian starling? Reforest. These things don't get into intact forest as easily. They love edges. They love our yards. So... We're just creating more of the problem every time we tear down a chunk of forest and put a lawn in or, you know, you name it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm working on a project that we're finishing up the manuscript right now, but it was a restoration of a reed canary grass monoculture Oof. that they reforested and it killed out the reed canary grass because it can't tolerate the shade. Dang. So basically just treat the reed canary grass with glyphosate plant a bunch of trees, leave it 20 years later come back you got a forest and re carry grass is gone. That was the story of the paper basically wow. so. Quite a story. Uh, we're calling it existed, assisted succession. Nice. So, for a succession assisted with the, you know, initial measures. So, yeah. I look Forests. forward we to that them.
0: paper. I really do because yeah. this is so It hits home because, really close to home, because I, I, you know, growing up in the Great Lakes area, I've seen in my lifetime what the emerald ash borer has done to forested swamplands or wetlands, and that's the first thing to come in and take over if it's not already reed. It's reed canary grass, right? And so... To me, it's like, well, let's find the next ash. What's the, how are we going to reforest these wetlands to undo it? Because that's exactly what that reed canary grass was taking advantage of. So I've seen the opposite side of it. And it's really nice to know, at least there's some hope that reversing that trend, although losing ash is a travesty, there is other options. Uh, and if we want to steward the land back, there is there is options. <laughs> I like having options because not having them sucks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Being flexible is very important.
0: <laughs> right. And so to kind of narrow back in on this genetic side of things, too, another really interesting idea is, you know, to to kind of coincide with the trait ideas, hybridization, right? And that's something humans do all the time. Or if you bring two species that were once separated together, like in a garden setting, now there's more opportunity for that to happen. And when you think about traits that, whether we understand it or don't, can potentially lend to the invasion potential of a species... Does hybridization factor into this? You know, are we potentially making things worse by mixing and polyploiding and making genetic things that don't happen as easily in nature?
1: Well, maybe. I a lot of I mean hybrid hybrids are known for being inviable and doubling a genome can be bad too. So a lot of that can be detrimental. Mm. But I mean, in crop breeding, in cultivar breeding, those are used as strategies to make new exciting things so it can work out too and hybrid vigor is a thing so making a hybrid that covers up the any deleterious genes and can make something that's stronger basically so um yes and no i guess (laughs) but um but the idea of hybridization as a pathway to creating invasiveness is was something that I was really excited about too for for that loose strife project so when I very first started my PhD my advisor had had a a former student that had just as like a little side project looked at a bunch of floral traits in purple loose Strife out in the field in Ohio because a um i believe it was the state botanist for ohio dnr um richard rick gardner rick Gardner. um he uh had had been noticing that there were some traits out in natural loose populations that looked like what is called Lithrum bergatum mm. which is a that's a horticultural species that is very closely related to purple loose which is Lithrum salicaria that you could still buy in the time at Ohio in Ohio and you can still buy it in some states mm. so it looks a lot like purple loosestrife, strife but it's smaller it has thinner leaves it uh, is not as hairy and the the thing that we found was most consistent to tell apart is if you measure the lobes on the calyx they there are really long calyx appendages in salicaria purple loosestrife, and Virgatum has shorter appendages. Hmm. So um, Rick was out in the field. He was seeing what he thought was looking Virgatum. And he said, you all should look at this. So this former student had looked at it and found that there were some of those calyx ratios that looked pretty Virgatum. Hmm. It looked like the ornamental one. So I got past this data set in like my first month of grad school and I tried and tried to get good DNA from purple loose Strife or from Lutheran Brigadum um, out collected in the field. And also I you know, tried to get some from uh, nurseries and I had some people in Europe send me specimens send me seeds of native collected
0: wow. individuals
1: as well. I could not get good DNA from those oh, plant. No. <laughs> so <laughs> somebody out there could figure it out. It um, It's very mucusy. Uh, and so that makes it hard uh, is, is what I heard that, that that could be the problem. I did, a, I did a lot of things to try to figure it out. But my goal was to try to detect hybrids um, or try to detect any signature of Luthrum brigatum the ornamental one out in the wild. And, um, when I wasn't able to do that, I did, I was able to amass a pretty big, uh, data set of huh. those ratios that was showing that we do see ratios that look pretty me out huh. in the wild. And so that's not published. That's just like a little report that I wrote for the Ohio and based plants council. So you can probably dig it up somewhere if you're interested, <laughs> Nice, but, um, but they're out there. Um, but what I ended up, you know, doing instead, which is, I believe, the reason you reached out from reached out to me to chat about this, was um, we took those native range seeds of Salicaria and Brigatum and planted them together in a common garden, just because it there's very little literature about this Brigatum thing. Mm. Is it a different species? What are mm. so I listed off traits that are different. But there's not a whole lot of information about th- them and whether or not they're different. So I wanted to just show I'm pretty sure they're different. Yeah. <laughs> and that's important. Right. Because <laughs> purple <laughs> loose drive is an invasive species and we should not just be ignoring Brigade because it's out there. It's in people's lawns. You can still buy it in some states. So let's figure out what's going on. <laughs> and so, um, I was able to show that um, in the common garden, we looked at flooding as a gradient just to see if they were different in that way. Are they different ecologically? Are they different in a way that matters? And so they are both wetland species. And we found that it seemed like Salicaria was a little bit less stressed by the intense flooding than uh, Virgatum was. So Virgatum got a little more stressed. So there seems like there could be a little habitat differentiation there potentially. And the other thing was that Vergatum made a whole lot more flowers,
0: mm. not
1: just, not just proportionally because it is a smaller plant, but the mass of flowers, just the total mass was more wow. than Selicaria. Yeah. Um. So that was surprising. Uh, but you know, if, if it is the one that was chosen to be, an ornamental maybe it's because it makes the flowers are smaller but there's more of them right um so that could make sense but um if we are worried about you know the massive amount of seeds they make if it's making more flowers that is something to think about so um so yeah that that project was just sort of baseline first step looking at this interaction with the two different loose stripes but there's a lot more stuff that could be looked at there
0: yeah that's what i'm I'm really happy to have heard the whole story of how that played out because it's a really cool story of how science kind of works a lot of the time And, and you know you kind of mentioned how cheap genetics and it's we're we're at a point where genetic studies are easier and cheaper than they've ever been but that doesn't mean it's necessarily easy and there's a lot of aspects that can challenge that i mean the fact that we you couldn't get good enough dna goes to show you that sometimes biology has different objectives in mind and and you being able to extract dna is not ever one of them but you know this idea that yeah. where do you begin when no one's really looked and that to me is fascinating in and of itself because it is so easy to fall back on it's 2023 why haven't we figured it all out well it's there's so many more unknowns and we have to start somewhere right and so this idea of chipping away at ecological differences to even know where, okay, I can't get the genetics, but is there a habitat or is there a flowering? Is there some biological or ecological difference? I ran into the same thing where what one taxonomist was treating as two species, absolutely no ecological difference and trait overlap of the lawsuit. So, you know, a, a lot of even <laughs> things we take for granted need to be challenged. And sometimes it offers up way more questions. And again, way more things that like another grad student or someone else, but you took that first Step. And that to me is amazing. And I love that because it's rare to hear that today because so many people are jumping onto projects already in place. You've taken a major first step in this to help kind of elucidate that, but much more needs to be done before you can really start to, to pull it away. And then, you know, the idea from the statistical standpoint of confounding factors, selection, choices, human decisions were made bringing something in and introducing it to horticulture. So I'm sure from a statistical perspective, that must be a fascinating challenge in and of itself.
1: yeah I'm, <laughs> i haven't i haven't thought that far i feel like i, I took off my little chunk sure. and and tried to focus on that but yeah there's a whole world out there man
0: yeah but that's just it i mean that is science in a nutshell right is biting off the chunk it's it's rarely is it this eureka we've discovered something new and it's we've changed everything like most of the time it's like we've set the bar a millimeter higher, but that's a millimeter higher than it was last year and many more millimeters. You know, over time, it really does add up. And that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I hope that we can agree that Virgatum is different based on that paper because <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is a small step. Um, I mean, there, it, there's a lot of people who say that they aren't different species and they might not be. I didn't, you know, do species delimitation. Sure um if someone wants to do that you're gonna have to get good dna though so yeah. look <laughs>
0: there you go <laughs>
1: well you don't have to i mean you can build the species on, yeah. based on traits too but um anyway um but yeah but then the other question of like what actually are the cultivars what you know are they actually there was a study in the 90s that did some isozyme so really old school genetic stuff and was um and they they were trying to figure out what are the cultivars. Are they are they Virgatum? Are they salicaria? Are they alatum which is the native loose strife oh. that grows in prairies? And um it was all a mess, basically, is what they found. <laughs> so things that were labeled Virgatum sometimes weren't. Mm-hmm. And I did a little bit of investigation into that too. There, most of these cultivars came from an agricultural station in Canada. So I tried to contact them. And then also, the, I believe the Royal Botanical Garden of Canada was the one that had all their records. So I was emailing all these people trying to figure out what were the sources? Wow. Did, did they come from you know certain regions of Europe? And someone said, we're unsure if maybe they came from local sources. If they're local sources in Canada, <laughs> that means they're Salicaria. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I don't know. It's all a mystery. But, wow. but then you do see, you know, out in nature, things that look like brigatum or out in people's yards, things that look like brigatum. So maybe yeah. some of the cultivars were actually from European sources. I don't know. Dang. It's it is it's a mess. But oh, yeah. it, it, was, it was fun to... Um, I don't know, I felt like an investigative journalist or something trying to track down.
0: Very (laughs) detective-esque and probably in avenues and and routes you never expected to getting into, you know, the hard sciences, right? And yeah, I mean, when you start getting into horticulture, it's stringent. I mean, there's definitely rules and regulations on like how we develop cultivars and how you get one registered, but is by no means peer review level stringent. And what they expect people to record and and the accuracy with which it's, vetted you know it's it's a it's it's a big mess (laughs) and boy that must have been a fun intimidating but also yeah i could see why it's like okay i've done my little bit let's let's see what others can contribute to this now yeah very fun well that's cool i mean again it's you think you know something i assumed i had heard a lot about this but even the part you've bitten off is is opening up so many more questions but you know in your position now you mentioned you get to dabble in a lot of different avenues are there any particular like botanically at least invasives that you're are are more on your radar for what's kind of up and coming need to think about that the audience could maybe go hey i we have this we should be worried or not worried i don't know (laughs)
1: um the the thing that I'm thinking more botanically right now is I've been playing with some data from the tri database, which is a plant trait, plant trait database available online that is giant and you can download so much data. So I've been playing with some root trait data. Mm. Um, so it's, that's not very specific to any one species. It's more thinking about like a big synthesis idea. So, um, I'm just kind of starting that. I just got a big amount of data sent to me and need to clean up a lot of things Ooh. and standardize straight values and stuff. So I've kind of put that on the back burner. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess lesser Celandine is, uh, <laughs> is one to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, what invasive species are you excited about right
0: now (laughs) lesser celandine seems to be a perennial nightmare that keeps resurfacing i escaped to the midwest for a minute and it was gone it wasn't there yet or at least where i was and now it's back in my life and i just you know the the level of treatment you need to kill it outright is borderline nuclear um but what do you do right and that to me is a, a huge conundrum um you know Kudzu is always interesting to me because when you see a good example of how invasive it can be, you go, oh my, we have unleashed a, a demon. But then, you know, again, you get into less disturbed areas. You're like, okay, it's not as aggressive as it would be. Um, You know, Tree mm-hmm. of Heaven's another one. Tree of Heaven is, is oof, it just, it's unrelenting <laughs> in a lot of places. Oh, that. yeah. Yeah, so... Oh, there's, there's many more, but those are the ones that are kind of top of my radar. If you know anything about getting mm-hmm. rid of lesser celandine that doesn't kill everything else around it uh, in the process, let me know or let the audience know. But obviously, that is <laughs> maybe not your wheelhouse, so I don't put you on the spot there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that's not my expertise, but it seems like there are some good guidelines out there that, yeah, just yeah. recommend using herbicide. I wore my Glyphosate blue nail polish to talk with you. So nice on point. Um and, you know, we don't we don't love using herbicide, but it's, sometimes that's the way. A tool in the toolbox, um,
0: if used properly, can be safe.
1: Is, <laughs> yeah. Um here's the silly thing about treating stone though. So in so I mentioned that resistance analysis where I looked at different habitat features. Mm-hmm. One was soil type, and we found that sandy soils seem to inhibit its establishment or success in some way. Mm. so areas with sandier soils you don't see it as much um so i said to my advisor oh maybe we could treat it by just dumping sand
0: sandboxification so stupid sand
1: <laughs> yes yeah, yeah no not gonna happen um that you know? just shows how how <laughs> removed i am i will leave it to the professionals fair know how to, yeah if
0: anyone knows please treat it. chime in i'm sure we would all enjoy hearing more about that but yeah i i throw it out there, right? Because you never know what kind of seems crazy to you might be actually a weirdly doable solution. But I'm also happy to hear that you're diving into root traits because that is a big black box. And excuse me, we we really, really do not understand what's going on below ground for most plants. And that's scary because, you know, we think roots are synonymous with most, the mass majority of plant species. So, you know, and then connecting that to lesser celandine, I have a sneaking suspicion, although I've never read anything about it, that the density. I mean, you could pull them up like turf and just see the density of roots. And I always thought, why is why do they crowd out things like bluebells? They, the bluebells can overtop them. They might not be able to recede and recruit. But yeah, I feel like root competition's got to be playing a factor there. So, please, yeah, keep going on root traits. We need more statisticians looking at root traits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of studies just don't look below ground, but. I was impressed how much available data there is. So hopefully, hopefully something comes of that.
0: Nice. Well, Dr. Mattingly, this has been absolutely wonderful to kind of unpack the complexity of this issue. And, you know, as a statistician, you got your work cut out for you, but I'm glad you're still working with plants on on that and, and keeping the stats, you know, in a, a realm of, of feasibility. But uh, if people want to learn more about past work and keep a finger on the pulse of any future work where do you recommend they go looking to learn more about uh your research
1: um i'm kz mattingly on most most things so uh my email is kz mattingly at gmail um that on instagram and twitter i don't use either of those much but (laughs) if you want to reach out
0: you can i'll see it so yeah thanks Excellent. Well, Dr. Mattingly, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us and, and really kind of shine a light on a very complex and confusing world. Um, but yeah, you bit off your chunks and that's really important. So thank you for telling us all about it. We really appreciate it.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Matt. It was really fun to talk to you. Good.
0: I'm glad it was a good time. But in the meantime, keep up the amazing work.
1: Okay. Thanks, Matt. Bye.
0: All right. Amazing stuff. I thank her so much for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, especially about a topic so complex as invasive plants. As we discussed, there's many different avenues of approaching this and many, many, many more questions to be answered. So for all of you looking to bite off your little chunk of the scientific world, look into the literature, look up the work of Dr. Callie Mattingly. It'll help you understand where we're at and where some potential unknowns currently exist. And of course, to do that, just check out the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com podcast, because that is where I post all of the relevant links for every conversation I have here. And of course, if you want to make sure that this show can continue to happen, please consider supporting it. There's a lot of different ways to do that. For instance, you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. And of course, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. All of those are amazing ways to help ensure the show has a future. And thank you to everyone who has supported it to date. I couldn't be doing it without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.